Hello, and welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDormand. And I'm Brandon Buddha. We are back with our coverage of Chapter 4 of Peace. This is our second recap episode. We'll be talking about pages 212 to 219 in the Orb 2012 edition today. So last time I I said that we hit two Patreon goals in rapid succession while we were off for uh, quite a long time. That is super awesome. And I just want to thank all of you for making that possible. Already, we told you about covering the Star Trek The Next Generation movies. But the other goal that we hit is for Brent and I to cover the first volume of Alan Moore's Swamp Thing run, issue by issue. We're doing eight episodes on that for everyone, and then we've also got some fun bonus episodes planned for supporters at higher tiers like we did with At the Mountains of Madness last year. I I honestly can't wait for this. Brent sold me on Swamp Thing a couple years ago, just hearing him talk passionately about it, its themes, its characters, what he loves about it. And to hear him do that for a bigger audience, I think it's going to be so great. Uh, This is is so awesome. I, I really can't wait to hear you guys go through Swamp Thing. Uh, But let's return back to peace here today. In this section, we're pretty much going to be spending time on a date with uh with Alton Weir. So let's uh let's go there. Yeah, right. I mean, this section is going to be fun to do because it is entirely just one long conversation. It, it's very Hemingway and Brandon, I really seriously thought for a while about having us just take roles and perform it, but you know, I, I know that no one wants that. So I, I might be lying when I said seriously, but I'm not lying when I said thought about it for a while. But at any rate, we pick up where we left off last time with we're waiting in his car for the librarian. And I had had a bad feeling about their interaction last time, but this time there's no sense. I think that she was hoping that he wouldn't be there waiting for her in the parking lot when she got done with work. In in fact, she says that she wasn't sure that he would be there, like she was expecting to be disappointed by his, his absence. One thing we should note before we get too far into this, though, is that it is very clear that this old man Weir, the old man Weir who is replaying this conversation in his mind, uh, you know, he's the one who's writing this down, and he's being funny about that. So when the librarian says that she wasn't sure he would be here, he just says that it wasn't that long and he was just at his desk. And of course, he means his replica office in his weird museum mansion, and that No time has passed for him between scenes, but the librarian thinks that he means that he was reading in his car. And so I guess we can infer here from this then, right, that this conversation is not going to be a faithful reconstruction or, 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 you know, full-on recreation, I guess, really. Uh, And that is something, of course, that we'll have to to think about what that means for all of this timey-wimey stuff. Probably, you know, something we'll do in the wrap-up episode. Because, right, it might actually mean that he really is bouncing through time. I'm, I'm still not convinced that we have we have settled that. Yeah, I, I've been working on a coherent theory about this that we can discuss probably in our final wrap-up episode, as you suggest. But for now, I think all we can safely and kind of uncontroversially say is that Weir is in some way traveling through his memories and is able to do so with some agility, even if he can't change the past. It's not even clear to me that he wants to change the past. He just seems to be re-experiencing stuff. And it's lines like this about, you know, reading the book at his desk or being at his desk that lead me to believe, as we mentioned briefly last episode, that he is maybe more in control or conscious of the direction that this journey is going. 
rather than him being tugged along by his unconscious mind. I am starting to come to your way of thinking about that, Brandon. But like you said last time, I'm going to, I think, probably ultimately stick to my guns too, just so we can have a good a good <laughs> and healthy debate about it when we get all the way to the end. But, but in any case, though, all of this, it's always unsettling, I guess, to me when we encounter these bits. And I just love from a, you know, from a, a technical writing craft standpoint, the way that Wolf peppers this throughout the narrative in such a way that it makes me kind of uncomfortable, right? It jars me out of the present of the text, but in a really awesome way, a way that, that thrills me rather than, you know, distracts me. Right. Like earlier in the novel, we saw how these types of intrusions were like happening to Weir. But something would intrude into his reveries and reminiscences, or he would consciously take himself out. But now it's all blending together. And the way he's writing this feels like he's intruding upon the past. And it's it's got this whole different uncanny characteristic to it that that almost I mean that that this is like where the the the, the horror almost comes from in this novel. I, I do before we move on, I do want to say one more thing about the librarian. This section in particular, even though we talked about how Weir was like super pushy to get her on this date, it feels to me as the librarian is written as a, as a little bit of a femme fatale, or at least she plays that role in Weir's mind. Like she knows she's got him wrapped around his finger and maybe that's how Weir is playing it. But in reality, like looking from the outside, as we've talked about, Weir is just being pushy and awkward with her. In any event, you know, the dialogue on this date is awesome. So maybe we should just continue along with that. Well, another issue in this section is that we don't know this librarian's name. So you just called her the librarian. I've called her the librarian. I mean, eventually we're, we're going to learn her name, but not in this section. So we're just going to continue on here in this episode, at least calling her the librarian. But even though we don't learn her name, we do learn some other things about her. We already know that she's divorced, but now we learn that she only recently moved to Cashinsville. So she's not from here. She's not a, a, a native. And she moved here from St. Louis, though Weir mistakes her accent for Chicago at first, or at least his first guess here anyway is Chicago. And she got here because there was an ad in the newspaper, and she answered it. In St. Louis, all she did at the library was cataloging. But here in Cashinsville, she gets to be in charge. She's the head librarian here, which makes her a big frog in a small pond. And this is an arrangement that she much prefers. She also actually quite enjoys the work. Besides doing the normal business of being a lending library, she is also going through the local material that the library has. And this includes a, a good collection of early documents. It's not quite clear what that means, but I assume that early here in this context refers to the first generation or two of the town. And then there is also some genealogical material that she is sorting through. Speaking of that material makes her realize that she recognizes the name Weir. She thought his family was gone, but of course, right, here he is. And he admits that he's the last of them, the last of the Weir family. But the librarian's really actually quite interested in this. She says, your ancestors used to own most of this town. I suppose you know that. But Weir only knows that they bought land from the Blaines and used it to build a, a grist mill on the river. At this point, the librarian makes a pretty dark joke about how the Blaines may have sold some of their land to the Weirs, but the Blaines themselves had simply stolen it from the Indians. 
And so now there's a bit of uh, discussion about how the Blaines maintained that there was a treaty, but of course there's no treaty anywhere to actually be found. Uh, the treaty that exists is not authentic. It was made up by a, a group of local ladies about 40 years ago. And hey, we, the readers, were actually there for that. <laughs> that was something that was going on at Weir's fifth birthday party all the way back in the first chapter. So again, another callback, right? Things are coming full circle here. And we're also, I think, because of this conversation, getting a real sense of the passage of time and, and this town as a kind of character with its own narrative. Right. We know that Weir was five years old 40 years ago. So he's around 45 now. He might be a little older, might be a little younger. In any event, he's firmly in middle age. And, and as we learned throughout the day, he's he's feeling pretty low about it. Uh, maybe he feels like, as this conversation demonstrates that he hasn't really worked to achieve anything or that his work hasn't achieved any personal goals for himself and that anything that his family has achieved in the past has been lost before it's gotten to him. Like he really hasn't added anything to his family's name or fortune. Now, we'll, we'll get a little more with the Indians in the next section, so I'll hold off talking about the way the librarian and Weir go about this discussion of the Native Americans in Cashinsville. Instead, what I want to do is point out the fact that the librarian has come from St. Louis. Uh, that was named for Louis the Ninth, uh, Louis the Ninth, who ruled France from 1226 to 1270. He is the only canonized uh, king of France, and he's so well regarded that his rule was thought of as a kind of golden age. I don't know what made me say that, uh, but anyway, Saint Louis is a major city in Missouri whose land was purchased as part of the Louisiana Purchase in 1803. Look, these are just some facts, but the reality is uh, this is not the last Louis that we'll see in this chapter. It's also not the first. So I guess I'm just trying to build a, a kind of board of information about the Louis that we get mentioned here to see if we can uh, figure out what Wolf is up to by the time we get to our discussion of chapter four. Yeah, that's going to be a lot of fun, actually, to think about the the use of the the, the name Louis or, or or Lewis throughout this chapter. And I'll, I'll confess that I I had not made that connection. I hadn't thought about it that way. Uh, Louis the Ninth is the special purview of one of my uh, PhD dissertation uh, advisors, and I have done a lot of work on Louis the Ninth and thinking about Louis the Ninth in in class. But uh, as an actual Chicagoan, I can only think of St. Louis as the home of the dreaded Cardinals, and and, and forget that it has anything to do. <laughs> with my beloved Middle Ages as well. <laughs> well, there are only really two more things that I want to make sure we narrate from this date, but uh, I should also set the scene a little bit here, I guess. Some of this conversation has been happening in Weir's car as they've been driving to a restaurant. That restaurant has a Polish name. It's uh, Milichik's. And there's a bit of a joke about how the spelling and the pronunciation don't really line up to the Anglophone ear. I probably didn't pronounce it correctly either, but I, I do think that that is how we would pronounce it in Chicago, where a lot of people have Polish surnames. And that name's actually going to matter to us later, but I will save that for a future episode when it shows up in the text. At any rate, Weir knows Milicic, and the food here is mostly French, and that's something that Weir is into. He likes that, so I don't know. That might be trying to get us to think about the actual Louis IX here as, as well, Brandon. Also, they order champagne cocktails, so there's a little bit more going on there with, with France. 
And they have these before dinner. And I have to say, Brandon, too, that this detail really, really filled me with some nostalgia for when we used to do this show in person and drink whiskey while we did it. I think, you know, especially just we're we're doing this all through COVID time. So like, I haven't been out to a restaurant in literally years at this point. But uh, all right, point is, that's the scene. So the talk about the town's origins and Weir's family history has them, and, and maybe Weir especially, talking about being the last of something. Can you imagine what it was like to be the last Indian, you know, locally, here around Cashinsville, anyway? Or perhaps the last dinosaur, or the last passenger pigeon? But Weir is really talking about being the last person, uh, the last person on Earth. And he says that he's aware that his skull is being dug up by an archaeologist's spade, like right now, in the, the present text. So... Uh, this is definitely some weird apocalyptic talk that's going on here. Uh, the librarian doesn't really get this, of course, but this is not the first time we have had this in this book, and it just jumps off the page. Yeah, all of this apocalyptic talk reminds me of Weir's thoughts about you know the future historians or social scientists or what have you looking back on our mundane time and thinking it an age of magic. And all this talk, too, uh, of the end, of being the last of something— is caught up with a discussion of the last Indian, which is at first an idea associated with a different species like dinosaurs and pigeons. But Weir still has Indians on his mind here, uh, perhaps because he's been thinking about how Lewis Gold's dress reminds him of Charles Curtis, who, you know, remember, was super into assimilating the Indians out of existence. So what Weir is touching on, on, on some level, I think it's the nature of identity claims, like who gets to name who, what, and and under what conditions can we even call someone the last of a kind? Who are we to even uh, ascribe labels to humans the way we might differentiate species of animals? And you know, to what degree is this sort of distinction based on race or national belonging, uh, citizenship, like super important? And and I feel like these sorts of questions here are underlined by the question that the librarian asks Weir about what we should now call the Indians. She says, like, shouldn't we call them Americans of Indian descent? And this is another kind of Charles Curtis type of um, thought, I think, or instinct to, to, yes, you can still have your heritage, but your primary identity is as an American. But this doesn't work for Weir, not because of the overtones of assimilation, but because it sounds like they're being named in the wrong category, like they should be from Bombay. And so like, for me, it's like, why are these two folks even debating this question, like to have some sort of minor rhetorical victory, maybe, when so much has been decided already for those peoples, the Native Americans, by an invading force that is trying to assert its own national sovereignty over them by erasing their own claim to, to national sovereignty and landholding. Yeah, you know, but but Wolf writes this dialogue like it's a Gilmore Girls episode, so it just like blows by as you read it. No, I mean that's exactly right. I mean this is this is patter, right? And and Gilmore Girls or or Aaron Sorkin, right? Like that's definitely the kind of of date that we're that we're getting here, and. I just on the note of thinking about dates in other bits of of fiction, I am in the middle of reading a uh, a Star Trek novel right now that is about how Riker and Troy from the Next Generation 
imagine what their first dates were like and and so on. This is something I'm I'm doing as uh, part of our our bonus episodes on Patreon for doing the TNG movies, and um, it's all written so terribly. And I think you know when we're reading <laughs> Wolf or watching the Gilmore Girls or like the West Wing or something, you know, something written by an extraordinarily gifted writer, we forget how difficult it actually is to write people flirting, to write people on a date in a way that feels authentic and feels good and really conveys the mood of the scene. I could never write something like this. If I were going to write this scene, I would not actually do any of this in dialogue and would just talk about what had happened in a sort of past tense here. And I'm I'm so glad to have had kind of a, a foil to this, <laughs> uh, you know, kind of reading within the same 24-hour period to remind myself to admire the skill with which Wolf writes this date. It's it's so well written. The dialogue is amazing, and and maybe rather than uh, you know performing Amanda Ross passages, we we should uh, dress up and 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 perform this dialogue, the date dialogue, <laughs> as a Patreon bonus or something. I mean, we won't do it, but maybe we will. I um, mean, it, look, we've done we've done Hamlet together. That's before, right, you know. <laughs> Well, there are a few more things I want to point out about this section. And and the first is just to mention uh, the painting referenced by Weir that hangs on the wall or hung on the wall of Milicek's. Uh, it's Watteau's The Mezzetin or Le Mezzetin or Mezzetino. Watteau is a French painter who painted in the late Baroque or kind of early Rococo style. He liked to paint stock characters from the Italian plays uh, in the style of Commedia dell'arte. Uh, the Mesitin was a Harlequin figure, a clown type of figure in the uh, stock characterizations of the Commedia. And he was one of the only ones who played his role without a mask, one of the few stock characters who, who did so. And this painting features the Mesitin playing a guitar in a courtyard, perhaps attempting to court some lady in her room. And behind Le Mesitin is a statue of Venus, who has her back turned to the courtier. So maybe the Mesitin here is kind of depicted as a, as a fool in love. I don't know. Maybe this painting has symbolic value here. Maybe not. Maybe it's just what, uh, what Milicek liked to hang in his French restaurant. I mean, we've encountered paintings already in this book, and they, they're they never accidental. So <laughs> that, I think, is also something that we're going to need to do as we approach the end of this book, which I, I realize is something we're thinking about quite actively here into the microphones, even though that will be, I don't know, almost a year from now before the, we, we get to do those episodes. But yeah, we should probably try to make a catalog of all of the paintings that we've encountered in the story, maybe some of the other artwork as well, and try to uh, put, put that together, kind of see how we can tell the story just by looking looking at, at those, you know, construct the narrative through looking at those. Yeah, that that's a brilliant idea. Th there is one more reference here that I need to point out. Uh, it's the librarian referencing how much she likes the rugs of Louis XIV or Louis XIV. Um, so I'll talk a little bit about him here. This guy reigned from 1643 until 1715. One of his nicknames was the Sun King. I'm sure there's no association with gold in that title uh, that we can draw <laughs> upon. But what the librarian references in particular, you know, as I mentioned, is the style associated with Louis XIV. I mean, there are lots of actual styles associated with Louis XIV. But given the fact that there's a Watteau painting in the restaurant, um, we're talking late Louis XIV style which leans more heavily into arabesques, like really advanced patterns in tapestries and carpets. 
I don't know. I feel like Milichex is a whole vibe that I don't quite have a clear picture of in my head. But if it is sort of gold and elaborate and um, sparse and marble and shell, uh, it's probably gorgeous inside. And it's the exact type of place you'd want to be drinking champagne cocktails. Yeah, I, I think the decor is French Baroque. I think that's, you know, I think you, you Google that. I think that'll probably give you some images that I think Milicic is is going for here. Uh, it's a it's a style that for sure would strike us in 2022 as gaudy, but that I think uh, in the 1950s people loved. Well, the last thing that's going on in this conversation, though I am going to bring up some odds and ends before we sign off this episode, but the last thing that is going on is some talk about the Golds and then this book, The Lusty Lawyer. But really what matters is that the librarian tells Weir about a book that Mr. Gold has in his shop that she would really like to buy for the library. This book is The Diary of Kate Boyne from around 1850, and This is the old Kate, whom we know from Mr. Doherty. Uh, That was Stuart Blaine's hostler. He's the one who told us about St. Brendan back in Chapter 2. And this is the same Kate who was a housekeeper for Hannah Mill when she was a kid, who in turn, uh, you know, Hannah Mill, I mean, was Weir's cook when he was a kid. And we met Hannah Mill, and therefore, by extension, this Kate, back in Chapter 1. But Weir's a bit skeptical about this, because he was given to understand that Kate was nearly illiterate, so how could she have kept a diary? But the librarian admits that the diary is full of misspellings and poor grammar, but nonetheless, it's really, really fascinating for what it says about the town in its early years. And of course, we know this is something that the librarian has been working on. She herself is, I guess, probably the principal researcher at this point into the early history of Cashinsville. So she's very excited about this. But sadly, Gold is asking way too much for the book. He wants $75 for it. But her entire annual budget for new books is only $250, and she simply cannot spend a third of that budget on one book, right? But Weir hits on the idea that eh, he could make a donation to the library for the express purpose of purchasing this volume, and then he writes her a check on the spot. And at this point, we might wonder about his motives for doing this, right? Is he just showing off his wealth, or is he genuinely interested, or I don't know, maybe maybe is his motive something else entirely? Yeah, we don't really get much about his motives here, but that's why it feels to me why I mentioned at the top of the episode that it it feels almost like Weir is trying to cast the librarian as a femme fatale, but isn't quite able to make it. I mean, what we do know is that Weir lives in an apartment by himself, but he can afford to go out to dinner and buy extravagances like fronting this librarian a third of your yearly budget, uh, uh, her book budget, in order to buy a, a diary, which we're not even clear why he'd be interested in such a thing. So yeah, it's a little bit of a strange interaction, and, and it's it's hard to nail down exactly what's going on. But as we said, we're is, I don't know, experiences some difficulty perhaps in his uh, relationships with women. I do have the sense, though, here that he is interested in the diary itself in in some way if only through his his personal connection to the figure of Kate Boyne right knowing of her through Hannah Mill and through you know the hostler who told him this story that clearly right has stuck with him through his entire life and you know interestingly although I was gravely insulted by Stuart Blaine's line about uh, biography being the only 
true history. Uh, and, you know, a line that gets repeated in this chapter by the librarian. It does seem that that's kind of Weir's attitude, right? That he is actually also quite interested in the history of this town, but that what he's interested in is the history of his family and the families of people he knows. He's interested in in people and tracing back who they are through tracing back who also were their parents and their parents and their parents and so on. So I think there's a bit of genuine interest here. Yeah, I think I think that's the case too. I mean, I certainly feel that way, but I don't know. When we get to the next episode, we might find that, you know, we might have forgotten about this interaction by the next day. But <laughs> right, I, I right. want to talk about uh, old uh, Kate here for a second. Uh, she goes by old Kate. She's called old Kate a number of times, and we haven't really talked about that or what that is referring to in this book. So I'm going to take this opportunity to do so. As we've already pointed out, you know, we're Kate is the one who told Hannah the story of the Banshee in Massachusetts. Uh, she also told, you know, Doherty, her grandson, that story about St. Brandon's trip to the U.S. Um, but as I said, I want to focus on this re-emphasis of her being called Old Kate or the Old Kate. Now, this is a name that was part of American folklore because of a famous haunting in Tennessee. Uh, the old Kate was the name given to one of the most famous ghosts in America called the Bell Witch, who haunted the Bell family. And in this story, this kind of sprawling tale are references to Native American burial grounds and buried treasures and poltergeists and hints of demons and all the sorts of things that we love about ghost stories are included here in this supposedly true account of this prominent American family and the old Kate Bat's witch. And so given how American folklore seems to be of real interest in the novel piece here, I have to be sure that Wolf was aware what it would mean for him to refer to a character as the old Kate. Well, that's really fascinating. I did not know that and just really hadn't thought about it. I just was taking the, the use of old there in front of the name actually as simply indicating that this is the way that Doherty referred to his grandmother, right? Rather than calling her, you know, grandma or grandmother or something like that. Uh, just, they, you know, they called her old Kate, perhaps to distinguish her from someone else who was called grandma or something like that. But no, I think you you have to be right there. And that will be uh, definitely something worth pulling apart a little bit more later on. Yeah, I, I will say, though, that's not what's actually weird to me about this section, kind of when when this name was reemphasized. <laughs> and, I, you know, I came across the book. Um, there's there's two books about this uh, haunting. Um, the original one is by a guy named Martin Ingram. It was written in 1894. And my library had it on display like in October. So I had like flipped through it, um, but it wasn't able to take it out because, you know, I was running out of time to, to read books uh, quietly and I had a stack of them. But anyway, what's actually like the weird thing to me about this section is how weird references Mrs. Bryce's hat uh, as a as a way to describe the way the librarian bobs her head, Mrs. Bryce is mentioned in chapter two. She's like a deep cut side character in this novel, who wears a bird on her hat and is responsible. Like her job as a character is to give us most of the exposition about the Chinese egg. So I felt like really thrown off by this reference. Like it's not clear to me why Wolf is tying this moment back to an obscure and easily forgettable character we met in a flash earlier in the book. 
Well, I think it's just more proof that the novel piece was the real inspiration for the TV show, The Gilmore Girls, <laughs> and that Cashinsville is the original Stars Hollow. I mean, I don't, I don't think Mrs. Bryce is the town troubadour, but I'm certain that Cashinsville has one. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's fair to say. But I do admire the way that Wolf really populates Cashinsville with these types of details. Right, gives us this sense that this is a real place, and especially it's a real place for the people who who live here. That they have common references with each other. That we, the readers, we don't really need to. We, we, we don't need to know much more about them, but that it it makes the world feel lived in. It gives us this this real depth. And I mean, certainly, right, this is a hallmark of the way that Wolf builds his his most famous speculative worlds as well. Well, all right, we are closing out this episode here. There is just one loose end to tie up. This is something that came up very casually on their date, and that is... G.K. Chesterton, who is somebody we love to talk about always, like everywhere on the network, basically, and also Weir's pocket knife. Well, actually, I should say, really, that this starts with the librarian invoking Jurgen. This is a, a fantasy novel by James Branch Cable. It's a comedic fantasy novel that makes fun of medieval literature. I mean, makes fun of Arthuriana, makes fun of, of Dante, and, and basically everything in between as well. We've encountered Cable before. Uh, his very long fantasy series about Dom Manuel was invoked in The Fifth Head of Cerberus in a story by John V. Marsh when the Shadow Children think about Poitem, which is the imaginary world where those stories take place. But the librarian then does quickly move on to thinking about Chesterton because she wants to quote him saying that a sword is the most romantic thing in the world, but that a pocket knife is more romantic than a sword because it is a secret sword. And this prompts Weir to show her his pocket knife, this pocket knife that he got for Christmas when he was six, also back in chapter one, right? That was our, our Christmas special. Yeah, the pocket knife is absolutely a key object in this novel. Again, this is something we'll have to talk about in our final wrap-up episodes, you know, just what we're meant to make of Weir's fixation on the pocket knife and maybe how it informs different interpretations of the novel. But that's for another episode. Let's close out this episode by talking about this Chesterton quote. This is a uh, reference to a book called Tremendous Trifles that was published in 1909. This book is a compilation of prose sketches written by Chesterton for the Daily News. And uh, this bit about the pocket knife comes from one of his sketches called What I Found in My Pocket. I'll read the full quote here. The next thing that I took out was a pocket knife. A pocket knife, I need hardly say, would require a thick book full of moral meditations all to itself. A knife typifies one of the most primary of those practical origins, upon which, as upon low, thick pillows, all our human civilization reposes. Metals, the mystery of the thing called iron and of the thing called steel, led me off half-dazed into a kind of dream. I saw into the entrails of a dim, damp wood where the first man among all the common stones found the strange stone. I saw a vague and violent battle in which stone axes broke and stone knives were splintered against something shining and new in the hand of one desperate man. I heard all the hammers on the anvils of the earth. I saw all the swords of feudal and all the wheels of industrial war. For the knife is only a short sword, and the pocket knife is a secret sword." I opened it and looked at that brilliant and terrible tongue which we call a blade, 
and I thought that perhaps it was the symbol of the oldest of the needs of man. The next moment I knew that I was wrong, for the thing that came next out of my pocket was a box of matches. Then I saw fire, which is stronger even than steel, the old fierce female thing, the thing we all love but dare not touch. Uh, that's where I'm going to cut it off here. This sketch ends with a bit of a joke where all the things that the writer, you know, Chesterton has found in his pocket, um, you know, are not the thing which he needs to find, which is actually his train ticket. Um, but in any event, I think in this passage, you can see the admiration that Wolf has for Chesterton as a stylist and perhaps, you know, the inspiration that Wolf received as a writer uh, from reading Chesterton in a passage like this. Yeah, that's a phenomenal passage. I I could have just sat here and listened to you read the the whole thing, Brandon, and and I I was loving every minute of that. I mean, just what gorgeous prose that is, and also I mean, just the imagery of that. This imagery of you know the first person to discover iron and realize that it's better than the flint tools that they have, and to you know think about working out some way to to do something about that. I mean, that's totally you know a historical. It's omitted, you know copper and, <laughs> and, and, and bronze and, and so on there, right, in terms of uh, the development of, of metallurgy and, and uh, metal tool making as a technology and so on. But still, nonetheless, this image of prehistoric humans and uh, the sort of discovery and perfection of, of tools, I mean, this is something that Wolf thinks about all the time as an engineer, as someone who is really, really interested in tools. This feels like this would have been right at home back in the 50s head of Cerberus, uh, any of the, the, you know, thinking about the abos, for example, either with Mr. Million or uh, at, at the museum, right, when we're with Dr. Marsh, for example. I mean, it would have been just right at home there. But also, I think that would have been right at home here in, in this book, where we get so much thinking about the way that civilization is connected to its natural environment, no matter how much we you know, lose track of that in in high modernity, and it also feels very much like some of the apocalyptic imagery that we get in this book. Yeah, it's a remarkable passage. It kind of blows you away when you read it and and see. Not only is the style consistent here with with peace, like you could insert this almost anywhere in in the novel in in a parenthetical, and it would feel right at home as you suggested. But also the the focus, and this is something that I think Wolf hides in this novel. Um, that this pocket knife represents in this passage on on the, the way that civilization has progressed uh, or changed maybe through the application of, of violence, either against animals or man against man in war. Uh, it, it, it's such a great passage and, and the themes of it, I think, fit um, this story really well, down to it being a joke about a missing train ticket. Which in itself is absolutely hilarious. And and Chesterton, of course, just he just is hilarious. He is one of the great wits of the English language. But perhaps also it does suggest, right, that uh, the pocket knife that Weir is looking for might not be the thing Weir is really looking for. Though I think we've we've suspected that before, <laughs> but I think this perhaps might be some confirmation of that. Yeah, and then I, I, you know, I've got a theory, but uh, that's not going to help us today. So I think that's going to do it for this episode. Once again, I'm Brandon Buddha. 
And I'm Glenn McDorman. If you would like to support the network and also check out all of the bonus series that we've been doing on at the Mountains of Madness, uh, the TNG movies, and the Swamp Thing, uh, I hope you'll join us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Media. And I'll add, too, that one of the upcoming stretch goals that we've got there is actually for us to cover The Man Who Was Thursday by G.K. Chesterton, which uh, uh, I think right now I would be really stoked to go do, and I hope that you, the listener, would be also. And joining us on Patreon is the the way to make that possible. Next time, we're going to be covering pages 219 to 232 in the Orb 2012 edition. This has us reading up through the line, Lady Luella softly lisped, for those of you who are reading along in other editions. And until then, we greet you and say farewell.